street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Welcome, all the SE Review video fans. I am here with at least three of my favorite people. I've got, I've got, uh, oh, I'm going to point the wrong way. I've got Reed with me here, and I've got Anthony, and then I've got uh, Nathan here. Reed, tell us, why are you here today? I am here because it seems to be we're doing this little review show every Sunday, and uh, I, I like it a lot. It's a lot of fun. And I also have a YouTube channel, Cordial Curiosity. I'm a big fan of SE. Uh, this is a Christian apologist critiquing SE. So I'm all about reviewing this. This should be fun. Yay, yay. And Nathan? Uh, yeah, I just uh, heard about this today. I love the weekly stream. Let's get started, man. Yeah, I want to jump into it too. Cool, cool. Uh, Anthony here. Thanks for ha having me on. I love these reviews. I, I feel like uh, we get to talk about things that we don't normally talk about because we have like a fresh vivid example right in front of us so it's nice to see uh people doing reviews of se and even critiques of it so i'm i'm eager to watch this i haven't watched it yet uh reed you watched it this okay. morning i did a few hours ago so um okay mm -hmm. uh nathan have you spotted it yet or have you watched this i i watched it just a half hour before uh we started so um yeah i think i've got a pretty good idea of what's in it okay you're fresh okay huh? very good hmm I'll be I fresh. got to watch it a, a few days ago uh, uh, when Reed found it and uh, made it available to us on the Street Epistemology Discord. And I am extra, extra motivated to engage with the critics of street epistemology. I think street epistemology, first of all, um, can show its strength because uh, when people engage with it, we, we come out shining. We come out really well. Uh, and so... Uh, I'm I'm extra into engaging with these kind of things, and this guy engages with it pretty well. I'm going to keep a little tally as to how often I agree with him, how often I disagree. Mm. All right, all right. Well, let's get into the video. Three, two, one, three, two, one, three, two, one. Welcome. My name is Daniel Ray. I am a staff apologist at Watchman Fellowship, and welcome to my YouTube channel. Welcome to this video about street epistemology that uh, I've been thinking about making for a long time. A couple of caveats. Number one, I am not going to get personal with anybody. A particular video or a particular individual. This is just my own testimony and experience with this popular level thing that we call street epistemology. What is street epistemology? And what is my experience with it? And then that's what I'm going to share with you today. So have some tea or coffee or whatever you like and join me for a few minutes and we'll talk about it. Or I'll talk about it with you, and you can sort of take notes if you want to, or pause the video, or make a critique video of this video if you want. Whatever you want to do, that's fine with me. But come along. I like the music. The music's good. 
Yeah. And as far as I know, he has been on my channel, Cordial Curiosity, about three years ago, July of 2017. I did a live stream with Daniel way back when. So I think he's also talked to Doug. He was also on my stream. I'm not sure who else he's interacted with over the years, but um, he doesn't say any names specifically. Has he done talked with you, Anthony? I think so. As I said, his name is Daniel Ray, and I'm pretty sure I tweeted with somebody about a month ago, three weeks ago, and we were doing some SE together. Um, and I think he mentioned that he, it wasn't his first SE rodeo or something like that. Like he's done it before, but I don't know how many other times total for him. Yeah, he's also been on T Jump. That was a and that was a fun conversation. I think that was my first exposure to him as well. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, what is street epistemology? It began in 2013 with this book. Peter Bogosian, a philosopher uh, and an atheist, uh, wrote this book in 2013 called "Hey, You Got the Year Right." You know, better than uh, Bishop Barron. A manual for creating atheists, and it has an introduction by skeptic Michael Shermer as well. Most street epistemologists that I've seen, uh, they don't really engage this book. It's not like the atheists have Peter Bogosian's book in their back pocket and, you know, thus says Peter and, you know, everybody's a Bogosianite. Appreciate that. Well, that's good. Boy, how often have we heard the opposite? <laughs> yeah. They don't do anything about Peter. Peter, you know, whatever. They, they follow Peter's definitions of words or whatever. So that's, that's uh, a nice change. Yeah. Not a religion. Two agrees already. Great. Oh, wow. You got a popsicle stick. <laughs> Tally. Okay. <laughs> it was a catalyst, I think, to be fair. It started a movement. Uh, some atheists read this and thought it was a good idea and took it to the streets. Bogosian's <laughs> uh, book um, uh, defines faith two ways uh, faith is belief without evidence. And faith is believing something that you know is not true. Kind of. It's real. I think he says pretending. This is very specific Bogosian language and uh, pretending to know something that you don't know is that that's the the more specific definition. But it seems like he was a more charitable interpretation of Peter's definition of the because of the that's the pretending definition that tends to get the most lightning strikes from the uh, from the apologetics community at least. Yeah, pretending is an interesting word there. Yeah, it, add, it kind of adds like more of a claim, and like into like the internal psychology of Christians, like they're deliberately dishonest. So that's probably something else. Did Bogosian start out in his book with saying what his definition was, or did mm. he say go with their definition? Because that's the thing that stood out in my mind the most after reading it a couple of times was. You should just go with their definition of words, all words, including really? this one. Which book, though? Because uh, I don't remember the first book ever suggesting go with your interlocutor's definitions, but maybe it did. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I don't remember that hmm. explicitly being said either in the first book. Well, it would have been nice maybe maybe it's in impossible conversations instead. That's no, that's generally what I do. Is like, yeah, get them to explain what they think that word means and. Uh, from my memory, and maybe this is just because I, I prefer to remember it this way, generally people will explain it to be one of those two things as like pretending to know things you don't know or something along those lines. Um, and try to repeat back what you're hearing in the in these definitions. Mm -hmm. He gets into this uh, definition in words more later on in okay. the video. We can return to that. 
Yeah, go ahead. It's, not, it's, it's not really clear, though, if he's saying that Bogosian is saying what these are and that a anyone who's doing SE also adheres to this, or he's just saying, this is what Bogosian said, however, dot, dot, dot. I'm not exactly sure what, you know, what he's saying. Why, why is he mentioning this? Is he, is he bringing it up because it's a problem or that you know, we've come a long way since then? I don't know. He talks about it here. That's Bogosian's definitions of faith in this book. Now, that kind of is still in the realm of minds of a lot of people who are practitioners of street epistemology. They think faith is something like that. It's believing without evidence. And um, that is simply not true. So I'll give you a little rundown, basically, uh, of what faith is and why that book and that idea of faith is erroneous. Well, number one, faith is an, a step of action. Faith is a step of action. That's one way you can use the word. Is it? It's the okay. Well, it's also um, he's giving a prescription for what the word faith means. So, what are we supposed to do when we encounter somebody who has a different a different definition of the word faith, whether they're a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu? Should we say, hold on a second? It's my understanding from a video that Dan Daniel Ray did is that faith is a step of action or something like that. Yeah, this is the official, you know, Christian theologian, you know, official ver definition and usage we should use. It's just the true definition. That'll so crash and burn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Immediately. It is, it is belief in action. You want to say something, I think? Well, I think it's really important to really to pay attention to people's definitions of this word, of course. It's really important. And then ask yourself, what's happening first? Because when I encounter somebody and they mention faith, it's often in the context of this is the thing that I need in order to be convinced that the evidence that I have is good enough to believe it. And I'm not exactly sure where he's using that word is faith the thing that comes after you've eval evaluated the evidence and now you're ready to make that step or is this making a step without a good reason to do so i don't know if he gets into it here but it's it's almost doesn't matter when you're having conversations with people and they bring up this word pay attention to see is it the thing that they use to get to the conclusion or is it maybe something that they get after they concluded that the belief is true I've seen it explained in multiple different ways. Does yeah. it make sense? I've usually heard that in function, it's both, but they can only really acknowledge one at a time. That it's both the step of taking something uncertain and making it certain for yourself and the thing that makes you certain. Yeah. It's like this first person, third person right. push. Faith made me certain to take the leap that made me certain that I took the leap or something <laughs> yeah yeah he explained uh, more okay if you will. that's the way the new testament that's the way hebrews 11 outlines it faith is an active belief right so it's not a lack of evidence we have a ton of evidence all around us we have the cosmos we have the revelation of scripture we have new testament manuscripts that are independent and early historical gold and what do i mean by independent four separate authors. Yes, there's overlap in those texts, 
but that doesn't render their independence erroneous. What it means is that somebody named Matthew wrote this, somebody named Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Whether or not you think they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four independent, four different distinct um, entities running around the, the first century Mediterranean world, circulating as though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote these four independent. That means We could all critique these apologist points, but let's just stick to the street epistemology criticisms. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 3% of Mark is not repleted in the others. That's not independent. Let's try to shoot our messengers in terms of like the apologist points <laughs> he's making. There's a lot of red meat here. It's four individuals sat down and wrote four different accounts. Yes, there's overlap, but they are independent and they are early. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, the creed there. That is the earliest attestation of the Gospels that we have written in the early 50s, not but maybe 30 years after the resurrection, from the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, the murderous Jewish Pharisee, who was transformed on the Damascus Road and attested to the revelation and the reality of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so in terms of his historicity, we have uh, five to 6,000 New Testament manuscripts. We have historians of all stripes and backgrounds, including Bart Ehrman, lots of atheists, agnostics. Um, uh, there, are, there are historians of all different stripes who affirm the existence and the reality and the historicity of the person of Jesus. Now, what you say of Jesus might be might differ. Bart Ehrman doesn't agree that Jesus is God, um, but they affirm the existence of Jesus. And, and the Gospels, in terms of manuscripts, are historical gold. We have nothing else that even comes close to the number, uh, the accuracy. We have so many manuscripts that we can actually understand, probably within a very good percentage degree, that uh, we have pretty much the accuracy of, of, of the originals that, that, we, that have been lost to us. So I say all that to say that we have plenty of evidence and that we're not acting in accordance with no evidence. We have a ton of evidence. We have church history. We have the cosmos. We have scripture. We have revelation. We have the resurrection. We have the beginnings of the Christian faith. We have all the saints that have gone on before us. There is a ton of evidence before us. And so we take a step of faith as Christians. It is an active belief. Faith is an active belief or trust. We are acting in accordance with the evidence, not in the absence of evidence. Active belief, trust. See, oh, this, this is why faith gets so freaking slippery. Because we're asking largely, like, how did you conclude that this is true? Or what's your biggest reason? And then usually faith is proffered as the reason for why they can say that they have the belief to a high degree of confidence. Yet it's being defined here as, no, no, no. Faith is an active belief. Meaning, I think, when I'm holding something and I think that it's true, I think he would say that that's faith. Yeah, there's such a popular usage of faith, which is belief without evidence, which is merely just believing, just cause. Yeah, right. That is a popular usage of faith in Western culture, especially the United States. Mm -hmm. So if he's going to use the word faith and he's meaning it in these ways, he's explaining it is like trust or active belief, active belief based on evidence, which he listed or, you know, there. That's that could risk conflating his usage of faith with the more you know verb version of mere belief just believing so that's a risk christians take when they say they use faith or have faith it's it's confusion it's confusing for people so as yeah. long as he's explaining how he's using it that's fine and and in se we try to define that word 
especially when that word comes up, we definitely define that and then go just go off that definition. So, yeah. Yeah, if, if I encountered uh, if I encountered an interlocutor who said that they had evidence, and then that when they look at all their evidence, then that's the that's the active belief that I hold because I have all this evidence. Then I wouldn't get hung up on the word faith. I would just then start investigating right. the quality of the evidence that you have that's leading you to this active belief that you're calling faith. Yeah, Doug says, according to Christians like Daniel, there is indeed a correct de definition of faith. So the the other popular usage is wrong. So he should be on our side and, you know, making that usage, making that whole idea not a good idea, not a good thing to do for anybody, for any belief. So help us with that project, Daniel. That's why the book was written, uh, to get people to, to doubt their faith. It's a, uh, a technique, uh, a method. Doubt their faith. Doubt their faith as in the noun, as in the set of beliefs. Yeah. And ideas. So there's the other usage of it, right? So it's, yeah. it's a methodology. It can be a reason. It could be an active belief, or it could be the noun of, I am of the Christian faith. And there's probably yeah. other definitions of it, too. So if you go with that noun version instead of like Bogosian's real, you know, critique of faith, which is the verb version, the way of knowing, right. the epistemology verb. version, it, both Daniel, I guess, and Peter Bogosian want people to doubt that version of faith, that verb version, the, the way of knowing, the epistemology version. So if that's what Peter means by doubting faith as doubting the verb version, that's a good thing, not and he's not even talking about the noun version, like he mm. said, of beliefs. It's about epistemology, street epistemology. <laughs> yeah. Although I have to say, I, I would think that Peter is probably saying, listen, if you apply the, this technique, you're going to probably start doubting your noun faith. You're going to start doubting that religion that you have. But uh, it is kind of funny, yeah, because you should question or doubt faith as an epistemology. Like that, that is a healthy activity because of the way people define it and how it could be leading people to erroneous conclusions. Yeah, it's doubt faith first, and then you could doubt your faith. <laughs> Not confusing at all. <laughs> all right, any, any, anything to say, Nathan, so far? No, I think you guys covered that one. Okay, keep going. Uh, it's really the Socratic method, if you will, which is a very ancient method. Socrates in Plato's dialogues is always asking questions to get people to examine their faith. And so there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think, I think if there's, if there's something good about street epistemology is that it gets people to think about why they believe what they believe. And that's great. I think that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, but Bogosian's book, uh, was pretty much, here's how you can use the Socratic method to get theists to question uh, and doubt uh, their belief. Of course, the title of the book. Mainly the epistemology of faith, not necessarily the noun. A manual for creating atheists. Uh, Bogosian's desire was to make atheists out of people. All the street epistemologists that I've engaged have been atheists. Not all atheists use street epistemology, but all street epistemologists that have approached me on Twitter or I've been on a couple of their YouTube channels um, 
have been atheists and seem to have had the goal in mind of getting me to question or doubt my faith. The verb, mainly. <laughs> and No. See, I think he's using it as a noun there. That's what he meant. He used the noun, but really, street epistemology's main thing with faith is questioning it as an epistemology, because that's how Bogosian yeah. defined how it. However, yeah. like I think questioning the epistemology and if it's reliable or not can lead to you doubting the noun faith. They, yes. they, they go they go hand in hand. Does it work in reverse? Yeah, they're usually. Not, it's not about the noun though, the beliefs. It's about the verb. We want to have reliable ways yeah. of knowing. And if we come to find out that faith, if we use that for believing in this, uh, you know, religious beliefs then that would cause us to doubt the, the noun the set of beliefs mm. the faith he is mentioning something here that the only people that he's run into using se to date have been atheists and i think I, i'd be surprised if he encountered somebody who wasn't an atheist who was using se i'm optimistic that they're out there i've i've run into a couple of them shout but, out to uh, luke shout out to luke okay yeah luke, luke is one of uh one of the people I, I i work with on the street epistemology discord he is uh uh a hard cast uh catholic and is good at se excellent yeah yeah yes he's he's, very, he's, he's uh, an exception prominent. but yeah. it's it's example that you can do se while having faith definitely and uh be on the lookout for a video from Anthony soon. <laughs> yeah, I met a guy named Edgar. I started editing it, but I, I lost interest. I don't know. <laughs> I got to get back to it. It's just hard to edit videos these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, stay tuned. Definitely. In the introduction of A Manual for Creating Atheists, written by Michael Shermer, Michael Shermer suggests that uh, The Manual for Creating Atheists was a good companion to Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. In fact, Shermer says that these two should be paired as a software manual for atheists for getting people uh, to doubt their faith and instead embrace reason and science. And so that's in the introduction. Um, and that's the basic, the, the foundation for where street epistemology, how it, how it began. I would agree with that pairing. That's, that sounds good. Pretty, pretty damn good. It was a good pairing for me. Like I read Dawkins's book and then I, st I stumbled across Peter's stuff and uh, I was talking with somebody recently. Do you remember how Dawkins did that speech in front of the Reason Rally? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. Uh, where Dawkins, I think, was sort of talking about ridiculing the person or maybe even what was saying the belief, like you ridicule the belief. But with, with Bogosian stuff, he's like, listen, don't ridicule the person or the belief. That's going to result in the backfire effect. Try this other way. So that it's a pretty good pairing, even though they conflict with each other. There's an important conflict there that I think is worth pointing out, but Dawkins' style might appeal to somebody and Bogosian's style might appeal to somebody else. So it's probably a, a fair, yeah, I'd like to see those two bundled together. Sure, why not? In 2019, uh, Peter Bogosian wrote uh, a different book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, and uh, it's a little different, uh, maybe a little bit milder version of a manual for creating atheists. Um, I There's these religious examples, but it's not about religion or faith at all. Really, it's a, it's about civil, civil dialogue. You know, yeah, how to have impossible conversations. It's really about that.
know a lot of atheists who are street epistemologists uh, like Peter's new book. I have not read it, so I can't comment on exactly what it's all about. But he did write another book in 2019 um, called How to Have Impossible Conversations. And uh, I, it's a book on my list I need to read and pick up and see what he's saying there. So so I'm mm. imagining and, 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 and giving Peter and street epistemologists sort of the benefit of the doubt here and saying that Probably, if you talk to a street epistemologist, you want to you don't want to necessarily go back all the way to 2013 and think this is what all street epistemologists believe. Because... Thank you. Wow, that's very charitable. Yeah. And what a what a nice what a pleasant surprise to hear that. Love that. Love that. Yeah. I think a lot of them have moved past that, and and, and even Bogosian himself may have changed and adjusted his model a little bit. Nice. I think he'd enjoy the second book more than the first. Yeah. So what is epistemology? Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. That's pretty much what it is. How do we know what we know? And street epistemology. It is taking epistemology to the streets. It's kind of like uh, evangelism, you know, in a sense. It's somewhat like the Socratic method for atheists who want to do evangelism for atheists, but with subtle question and answer sort of techniques. I didn't have this clip prepared, but it's... You know, I've had this clip from Bogosian's talk about it's not the goal is not atheism. The goal is critical thinking, having rational ways of coming to certain beliefs, and that is the goal. And atheism is a byproduct. Yeah, so that's the main goal. Yeah, I, I don't think we would have switched from talking about theistic claims to other topics if it could only be used to explore religious claims. Now, it's very, very good for that. Yes, he is awesome for chewing through religious claims very quickly. Whether you're Christian. You know, Muslim, Hindu, anything else, but uh, yeah, of course you can use it for other other things. Yeah, yeah, and it has to. I really hope that it does start getting more and more use for other things to demonstrate that. I think it's really important for SE to evolve well, past just religious views and religious ideas, um, because with every additional example, it's just going to illustrate more and more that it's a dialectic. Uh, and, mm. and just like in the beginning, this isn't a cult or like some group think, um, and you can believe in all sorts of different things and still practice street epistemology. And I think that's the direction SE needs to go. Yeah. I've got, I've got a question for all the, the content creators. When's the last mm -hmm. time somebody reached out to you and said, when are you going to upload another video about a theistic claim being challenged or something supernatural <laughs> that does, it doesn't have, it, it has not happened to me ever. People want regular world examples about mask usage, vaccines, the environment, yeah. veganism, and we've shifted, but that's, we've, we've made that shift years ago. But I think this legacy of where SE originated from will, will likely be there for a very, very long time, no matter how many new books come from it. Sure. We'll always yeah. have that history. If this book, a manual for creating atheists, you know, spawned a whole generation of street epistemologists and everyone became atheists, that would not be the end of the goal of street epistemology, which is mm -hmm. having everyone have good epistemologies. Right. That's, that's really the goal. It's not about creating atheists. So to see it proposed as like, we're evangelizing for atheism. I don't think, honestly, there might be some people who will do that. They will only go out just to meet with people who hold a, a religious view and talk with them. And honestly, like given the choice, that would be the topic that I'd want to talk with people about, to be quite honest. But it's not, of course, you can you can talk about other types of claims for sure. Yeah. Let's keep going. It is always kind of scripted. 
there are key things and phrases that someone practicing street epistemology uh, will use. They're not going to tell you, hey, I'm a street epistemologist. I have a series of questions that I'm going to ask you uh, in hopes of getting you to doubt your faith. <laughs> Is that true? I've heard Doug say that many times. Pine Creek would. Pine Creek usually does. I don't usually come out and say that because I don't know that that would be the outcome of it. Um, I try to give people a heads up that this could happen. I'd like to ask you several questions to gently challenge how you arrived at your deeply held belief. Sometimes it will result in a, an increase, decrease, no change in your confidence. But see, I don't even like mentioning that because I don't want to prime them to move. So I, I actually... I want to talk about, I want to give people a heads up what they're getting themselves into, but I also don't want to over explain. So I understand how this, um, I, th that's actually completely different from the scripted part of it. Cause there are a series of questions that we do tend to ask that you might notice if you watch five SE videos, you may notice some trends there. So I could see how it could look kind of scripted, but um, yeah, there, there is a general format to the Socratic method in general. And then with SE, there is like a, you know, kind of a script going, but it's, we don't want specific questions when we hear a specific answer. We want to be able to listen and go where they go. It's not like he, he brings up this cattle prod analogy later on, but we don't want to lead people in a certain way necessarily. We want to lead them in a way to help them critically think about something, Yeah, but not get to whatever we believe. Um, Cause that's not, that's not the goal. Yeah, if it wasn't scripted, it would just be like, what's the opposite of scripted? Just going where they're going, right? Or uh, following what what they're saying and repeating what what they're saying. Is, is that scripted? If that's scripted, then I mean, some of my questions I ask every interview, like, um, uh, you know, if you found out this wasn't true, how would that affect your life or some mm -hmm. things like that? And that's just like getting consent from them to probe the idea. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, I, I want it to be a natural, organic conversation. And I, I want to understand them better. And if I'm scripted, I'm not going to understand them better necessarily. Yeah. yeah. And Christians have very common answers to certain questions. And we just get a lot of the same answers. So we just keep testing questions and usually yeah. the best ones we can you put Doug's, can you post Doug's comment right. there? He, he wrote ex almost exactly what I was going to say. This the one? Yeah. The script is based on what your interlocutor says. If it seems scripted, it's right. because many people's answers are often the same. So the next question is, is sometimes similar. I threw in some wiggle words there, but so, yeah, I, I think, um, right. When, when you watch five videos on somebody who thinks that a God is real, any God, by the way, you're going to probably notice some similarities because we are trying. There's one thing that I think kind of can lead to uh, these conversations appearing scripted. And that is our desire to get to the foundation, to not dwell on the claim or, or so much on the reasons, but it's the foundation. So we are often driving there, or I guess, is it guided? I guess it's somewhat guided to the foundation. But we often explain that that's where we want to go. I want to get to what's propping all of this up. So, yeah. yeah. Keep going. Framing. It starts off as a friendly conversation, whether it's somebody in a park 
wanting to uh, ask you a few questions. They might have a clipboard and a camera or somebody on social media or Facebook or Twitter or Discord, somebody wanting to ask you questions about your faith and why you believe what you believe. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. And I will say that every one of my exchanges with a someone who's using street epistemology has begun cordially. I will say, yes, that, that is a the 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 introduction into it, your interlocutor, the IL, as they like to say, is very kind and very pleasant and very civil um, and wants to have a kind and pleasant and civil dialogue about what you believe. And so uh, it's good. It's it's civil. It's engaging. Uh, people are willing to talk about uh, important topics. You know, these these are big questions. Philosophy of life and the philosophy of how we we know things and a God, you know, these are big questions. And so uh, that 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 someone would be willing to talk to total strangers about this. That's pretty cool. I So heads, that's a kudos uh, to, to those atheists that are out there on the streets willing to engage people about difficult questions. I think. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. You know, this is what Christians have been known for. We go out and evangelize. And and so, you know, <laughs> they, they bring back the idea of the importance of dialogue. You know, it goes all the way back to Plato and Socrates and the importance of dialogue, asking each other all about it, their questions to get to know what we all believe and why we believe them. So I will say, you know, street epistemology is good for that. It gets you to think seriously about why you believe what you believe. And I honestly think there are some practitioners of, of street epistemology, maybe, though they be maybe not with your conversations, Doug, <laughs> the atheists that would be happy to hear that or at least our stream with him. It what are you tracking, funny. Dolly? What are you tracking there again? Agreements and disagreements. Okay. Agreements and disagreements. Yes. And, and it's heavy on the agreement side. Yeah. It's very Your heavy on the agreement side. Questions led you to think more deeply about your faith, and if you were to come back to them and say, "You know, thanks for the questions. I now have better reasons to believe than I did before I talked to you." I think there's some street epistemologists that would go great. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. uh, but there's some that wouldn't. There would be some that would be like, "Who? How did I? Where did I go wrong?" <laughs> well, let's 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 dwell on that a little bit. Like, yeah, okay. Every every seer is their own individual person with their own individual goals, and I can see people, and I've done it, have a conversation with the sole purpose of seeing if you can impart some doubt on the claims that that person's making. But it's not something that everyone does. But if you start off with that as a goal and you don't achieve it, then I could see where you'd be like, ah, darn, like it, you didn't really seem to be all that impacted by, by that conversation. So it can go kind of both ways, but it's, it's up to the practitioners to set those goals. You know? Yeah. With impossible conversations in the first bit of the book, it's goals is like the very first thing. And like one of the goals of a manual for creating atheists, they, like he uses the term intervention a lot. So he does want to, create doubt and not only yeah the verb but the noun of the set of beliefs of religious beliefs yeah so that's fair that's fair you know for anyone like is on the receiving end of an se conversation you you are well within your rights to ask your your se or <laughs> if someone asks you a confidence scale or whatever like you're tipped off that they're doing some se ask them what their goal is mm -hmm. sure do you mind if i i ask you what your objective is with this conversation are you hoping to see a dip in my confidence that this is true or are you striving for clarity? Take me through it. Can you help me understand what your goal is here? Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
if you're engaged with a street epistemologist, listen. Just listen to what they're saying and 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 be willing and take advantage of the civility. Uh, be civil yourself, and uh, you know maybe you can make a friend um, because some of them want to extend the conversation beyond the initial conversation. And so you know, kudos to them for willing to go to that length to continue to engage you about what you believe. And so here's a wide open opportunity to share what you believe about Jesus. And so that's those are some good things. They're engaging. They're good questions. It's interesting. It's it begins in a, in a spirit of civility and commitment to to thoughtful dialogue. Amen. So here's a wide open opportunity for for you to give your testimony about how you know who Jesus is. And so this comes about in the form of a question. And we would interpret that as reasons and methods. So that's fine. How you know epistemology. Absolutely. That's what we're looking for. Something like, how do you test your beliefs? Or how do you falsify your beliefs? Or what method had you used to come to know that the Bible is true or that Jesus is true? What method? How do you know? What 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 uh, tests did you perform? And we don't really think about that. I mean, uh, nobody sat down and, and, and came to faith in Christ uh, like a science experiment. Uh, okay. Nobody. Um, I know an astrophysicist who was walking across the campus one day. She was not a theist. And as she's walking across campus, the idea hits her that God created the universe. And she goes, well, of course. It was kind of an epiphany. And there are a lot of people that come to be begin their faith in Christ with those kinds of epiphanies. I came to Christ. Uh, my faith began by being convicted that the Bible was God's word. Wow. Yeah, I, I think I'm calling bullshit. It just There's dawned on me. Astrophysicist goes, oh, of course, God made it all. La, 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 la. Huh? No, that didn't happen. Where's my question for him? Are you? Would you be satisfied with that answer? Is that a good enough answer for you to find her reason compelling? Or would yeah. you would you be scratching your head on that one and wondering, like, it, what? Would there be a more better or obvious answer to this question than just um, discerning that it's the case? Yeah. What in the history of humanity have people had an epiphany about that turned out to be completely wrong and false? How does epiphanies relate to even close to like a reliable way of coming to believe anything? I'm very confused. Yeah. Before this idea dawned on you, uh, what was your confidence level? And after it dawned on you, how much did it go up? And it, should should an idea like that just dawning on you bump you up in that amount of confidence for something else would be mm -hmm. like the SE line of dialogue. And, and if someone else had an epiphany, epiphany right next to you that God had nothing to do with this universe being created, how could an outsider tell which one was you know, actually right. accurate in their beliefs? This is the point of the yeah. outsider test. Which Why is he mentioning this here, though? Like, it, what's what, what's the point of him mm -hmm. mentioning this story? I'm not sure I follow. He's talking about epistemology, and I think this is. I think he's, he's smuggling in that God can be a reasonable conclusion to epistemology by giving an example for which he gives no supporting detail. Yeah, mm -hmm. no scientist would respect an astrophysicist having an epiphany about a theory. Like, okay test your theory, give some predictions, and we'll see what how good of a hypothesis this is. I wonder if you're saying... Epiphanies can lead to hypotheses. Sure. That's as far as it goes. Mm-hmm. 
But to go from hypothesis to I'm now settling on this as the explanation. But why is he why is he even mentioning this? Is he mentioning this because this smart, intelligent person decided to do it and therefore I'm justified in doing the same thing? He's using it as an analogy to his Christian belief. If an astrophysicist can have an epiphany about the origin of the universe, and uh, I don't know how far he goes with this, but like therefore they're justified to believe a God had something to do with the creation of the universe because they're an astrophysicist. I don't know. I really don't understand the analogy really. Mm -hmm. um, let's just see what he says more about it. I forgot. Without even reading a page of it. How did I know the Bible was God's word? I don't know. How did I know Jesus was a real person? I don't know. That's where my conviction started. And, and that's what started me. Like the Peter Bogosian book started the street epistemology. Well, God coming to me in the in the person of his son, revealing himself to me through the spirit, uh, convicting me that the Bible was his word before I'd even read it, uh, revealing to me that Jesus was true. That's how it began. And then that launched a 27-year investigation into the reality of the Christian faith. Okay. It launched an investigation. That's fine. You know, investigation is good. And investigation to entail testing, which I think he gets into. So yeah, and so, oh, but I have to wonder though is is his is his pre conviction biasing him towards everything else that he stumbled across in those twenty seven years, or was the end result of the twenty seven years him now saying I am now convicted that this is true? Which which came first, the yeah. chicken or the egg? Yeah, the, the conviction. He's clearly saying he had a full on conviction right at the beginning with zero evidence. An epiphany about mm. a, a state that, of affairs that, that needs to be cleared up because yeah see I, I was getting the sense that he was saying i became convicted in my search to see if this is true but he could very well be saying i became convicted that it's true and then i set out to demonstrate that it was to myself yeah that's a recipe for confirmation bias if you come to an epiphany about a conclusion and then go into an investigation to confirm right Conclusion. And actually, think about it. Let's say you studied something for 27 years. Would you want to say that I'm convicted in it? That, that sense, I did a whole video with this guy named Gabriel on this, but it kind of gives me the impression that you're closed-minded on it and that you're not open to it. If you're convicted, you're you're so sure that it's true that you're locked into it. So like, conviction is nothing to brag about, whether you do it on the front end or the back end, in my, <laughs> from my perspective. Yeah. Yep, yep a 27-year investigation into the reality of the Christian faith. So when a street epistemologist has asked me how I test my faith, I give them my personal testimony and I tell them what I've done over the last 27 years that has given me the confidence that Jesus is the Christ and, and the Son of the living God. And so here's what's interesting when that comes up. So we talk about confidence. And so I might lay out my testimony. And the next question or some question down the line might be a confidence. And how confident am I that my belief in Christ is, is, is true, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, of course. And so what they'll do is they'll want to put a percentage. They'll want me to put a percentage point on it. They want me to give them, say, 90% or 87% or 95%. Or they want me to quantify my confidence level. And here's one way one kind of response that you can give to them to find out, you know, if you're not sure if you're dealing with a street epistemologist, but here's one way to find out where they're going. Because in my experience, every street epistemology conversation I've ever had, 
I felt like I've been been steered like I'm being steered into a cattle chute here in Texas. We put cattle into a narrow chute. I mean, they do it in other places than Texas, of course, but you try to get cattle into a narrow chute so they can only go one direction and they can't turn around as you're trying to load them on a cattle trailer. And to some degree, I, every street epistemologist conversation I've ever had, I have felt like at some point I'm in a cattle chute and can't turn around and explain myself because I'm given a, a, a prescribed set of answers. Please only answer Whoa. me this way. Please only well, if anyone walked away with that impression yeah. from an FC conversation, I'd feel terrible that they did. Uh, I, got, mm. I got some problems with, with what he said there. Uh, I hope that wasn't um, – well, that was his, his experience apparently. Uh, that's That disturbs me. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that might be somebody's experience if they're used to being able to change the subject every time they come up against cognitive dissonance. And you keep saying, please answer the question – for the claim that we're talking about now he did you back on the claim he started this and i think in, that can feel like cattle shoot maybe hmm. he started this uh, cattle shooter being steered in the context of the belief scale let's not forget about that so maybe let's let's frame it in terms of the belief scale um hmm. if, if you were uncomfortable with the belief scale or you didn't understand it i would probably just move on and not focus on it. I wouldn't say, no, 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 we can't go any further until I know where you are on a scale from zero to 100 that this is true, <laughs> you know, where your confidence is. Um, as a practitioner, please don't do that. Just, you, you can ditch things if it seems like it's interfering with your progress. Um, these are simply tools that we've noticed can be really useful in shining a light on people's beliefs. Uh, but sometimes people balk at the tools or they're not ready for the tool or they don't like how you describe the tool or they somebody else used the tool within them and rubbed them the wrong way. I think I'm trying to steer myself uh, to their understanding when I'm listening to somebody doing SE. I'm hearing how they got there. What was the path or the trail that they took to summit the mountain? And if I can't follow them to the top of that mountain with them, uh, well, then that reveals itself in the questions and it might feel like steering because they're reliving how they got there um, as they explain how they hmm. how they came to their conclusions. Um, so maybe that's why he's left with that impression. Um, but generally, I'm just going along for the ride, figuring out how they determined it. So um, street epistemology is a lot about about um, like a process of elimination. Like think about when somebody says, I have this reason for my belief, we make sure that it really is. And if it's not, we set it aside to focus on the real reason. So I can understand how if your normal interactions with people about God, you know, if you're a, if you're a theist and you're talking to an atheist and you're used to just um, sharing all the good things that the belief does for you and, and your conversion story and the, the story about the person walking across the campus, as a practitioner of SE, that's all nice, but I want to get to the reasons. Like It's like you've told me that you're making a cake, and I'm interested in the, in the ingredients that you've used to make the cake, all right? And um, there's no need to go down the meat aisle or that other aisle over there or the laundry <laughs> detergent aisle. So I guess in a way, like I would probably dissuade my conversation partner from going in a direction that isn't getting us to the foundation. Now, as, a, as somebody on the receiving end of that, that might seem like I'm being boxed in or I'm being steered. I can no longer go to the meat aisle. I love the meat aisle. I love the laundry detergent aisle. It smells great over there. Why isn't this person letting me go there? 
because we're I'm I'm not interested in going in a direction that that doesn't contribute to the ingredients in the cake. Take me or, through the aisle that has all the ingredients that build that make that delicious piece of cake. Or the spiciness of the jambalaya, as um, Eddie would like yeah. to say. Jambalaya, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but that's that, that's good as 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 uh, as people interested in SE. We should be aware that there are people that will look at our efforts to bake boil things down really simply. As wow, look at all these options you're taking away from me. <laughs> that's basically what he's saying here. Mm. Uh, I, there were all these other things that I can go to, but you're you don't, you're seemingly not, not not interested in them, and I'm I'm curious as to why. That that's what I think is going on here. So maybe we need to we need to do a better job of explaining why I'm not interested in going down that aisle. That I'd like to stay in this aisle because this is more relevant, seemingly. Right. Be more clear with our goals. Well, if I add laundry detergent to the cake, will it still taste the same? Will it still be a <laughs> cake? You know, I think that's a good point. Yeah. I'm in a cattle shoot and can't turn around and explain myself because I'm given a, a, a prescribed set of answers. Please only answer oh. me this way. Please only. Yeah. Pre prescribed set of answers. Um, no, like give people like if, if I say, would you say yes to that or no to that? Or maybe something else like always try to throw in a wiggle room. So you're not boxing people in. How many times have we, we've, we've seen conversations where we offer a couple of options for them to consider now, somebody may hear that you've given two options and think, oh, shit, those are the only two options. So make sure that you keep it open. Like, you know, this is what's called calibrated questions in the new book, oh. How to Have Impossible Conversations. We want, we don't want closed yes, no answers. We want, you know, use calibrated questions. You know, what an explanation. What an yeah. Answer. And if let, let's say you close something off, you know, like you decided, like the, using the, the, the grocery store aisle, like, we don't need to go down there because that's where they keep all the laundry detergent. Um, later on, it might become evident that we actually need to go re revisit that aisle. So we'll go where you take us as long as it's relevant to the confidence that you're assigning to your belief. Mm -hmm. Only answer me this way, please only answer me this way. They're trying to get me to go in one direction. So here's how you can tell if the, the gist of the conversation is trying to get you to a point of doubting your belief is if they bring up the conversation in the conversation, this percentage idea, what is the percent confidence that you have that your belief is true? And hmm. because what they want to do with that is they want to, they want to have this number. They want to have the conversation and then they want you to have another number over here. So with religious beliefs, maybe sure if since we're atheists and and we were like we don't think a god is real and you know <laughs> maybe if you know that's kind of charitably true but ideally the first goal is making sure whatever confidence you are it's revisable it's you know you, you can move even up you know, what would make you move up as well you know ideally no one should be stuck on anything if my desire, if my goal in this conversation was to see how often I could get somebody to shift their belief, would that be an okay goal? Hmm. Would I need to have a more yes. nuanced goal before it might be legit? In my head, I've always thought... Um, I think so. Not s Go ahead. You, you think so? Yeah, I, because uh, just... 
imparting doubt for the sole purpose of imparting doubt can be kind of reckless. Like, um, yeah, yeah, you you could be pulling people away from a belief that's really true, right? So it's it's not just like to crush people's doubt on every claim that they make because people may be making factual claims about reality. So the idea here is to really explore the quality of the reasons and the reliability of the method to see if your confidence level is justified. And that can, that can result in any direction to go. So like walking in with the intention of, um, of moving people lower, perhaps on their confidence, I think could be, could be reckless because you need to hear them out and see what they're basing it all on. Like, I think you need, you need to go into it with the idea that they've justified their confidence. Yeah, I like to I see evidence have that they have calibrated their confidence. Go ahead, Nathan. I always like to think of it as narrowing the gap of the dispute. So it isn't so much that my goal is that they lower their confidence. My, I want to understand if I want to realize that I didn't understand what they were saying before, and maybe they have some nuanced way of saying what they're saying. Maybe they have a different definition of God or something like that. And if they do, then I have a new understanding of what they're saying. And um, hopefully if I'm at a zero and they're at a 90, um, that that difference is smaller by the end of the discussion, which isn't necessarily the same as in parting doubt for that particular thing. I guess I'm thinking about like all topics, not just God claims, but to me, it's about resolving yeah. disputes. Since he's showing 100% on this frame, it can only lower. So I'm sort of stuck that if, if my motivation is to see evidence that they have calibrated their doubt, it could only be to lower their doubt. I'm just as happy if they raise their doubt or uh, whichever, they raise their, raise their confidence. Either way, to me, is just as good. Uh, if they've adjusted it, I don't care which direction they've adjusted it. I'm only interested that they have considered it. And yeah. the wise man proportion his confidence to the evidence. And we're going through the evidence, the reasons, the epistemology. And uh, if there's an adjustment in confidence, oh, you know, according to where the evidence points, that's a good thing. Right. Yeah, like if, if you look at the quality of your evidence and you realize that you can't justify your level current level of confidence to your own satisfaction, to your own standard, then I think that's a valuable lesson. That's a valuable experience to, to discover. So like he said earlier, you can go find better reasons for it or you can adjust your confidence. Like there's, there's nothing inherently bad about lowering your confidence. Like shouldn't we all be... Shouldn't we all be trying to adjust our confidence to the quality of the evidence that we think that we have? Yeah. I think that's that's what we should all be trying to do. So, like, fluctuations in confidence is a good thing, up or down. Yeah. If we were talking about the efficacy of vaccines or, like, should you take the coronavirus vaccine and someone's like a 1% confident that they should, we would want to. I, I, would, I would have the goal of intervening about this person's yeah. belief and trying to raise their confidence about taking the vaccine. However, there there are some beliefs, though, like God beliefs, that it's taboo to question them, it's taboo to doubt, and that it's tied with morality, and now I'm less of a good person if I start to think that this isn't true and all this other stuff. Yeah. All right. Want to keep going? Let me just say one more thing. Cl like, clarity can bring 
clarity in your views, which is what we're trying to do with SC by asking these questions, which could be looked at like steering you or, or boxing you in. When you have cl better clarity into the quality of your reasons and the reliability of your method, it's going to probably result in you adjusting your confidence. But I think that that's a good thing. You know, I, I can't hammer on that enough. Right. They want you to go from a 90 to an 80. And that's their goal is the reduction of the level of confidence in your belief in God. We want you to come to the realization on your own about your own epistemology. And if that results in a confidence change, good. It's We want the person to realize the quality of their epistemology. And if their confidence is connected to that epistemology and they discover it's not a good epistemology and they doubt that's good. I mean, we could ask... Like, just look at this in a different way, Daniel, or anyone else that might be taking his position. Um, let's say that you used SE with somebody who believed in a completely different God, a Hindu God or, or Allah or whatever. And if you realize that you can ask them some questions to help them realize that they don't have good reasons for thinking that that's true so that they can go find better reasons or consider lowering their confidence in it, wouldn't you say that that's useful? Mm -hmm. I would imagine that he would say that it is. But it's an issue here because it's an issue, I think, for this gentleman, if it's used for people who also share his same God belief. If we exclusively use this on Mormons or, or Hindus and right. uh, Muslims, would that be such a big deal? Probably. Exactly. Yeah. And so if they lead with that confidence number, you can pretty much say you've just looked down the narrow way of their cattle shoot and they're guiding in you and directing you to a lower percentage of your belief in Jesus. They're only trying to cause doubt. Just tell them you are confident. And at the end, you might say, my confidence in God hasn't changed, even though I could not answer all of your questions. I can get back to you with whatever you're talking about, whatever question you couldn't answer. These are some deferment. Yeah, Don. I, uh, well, immediately he is saying before you've even considered their arguments, before you've had the conversation, here's the conclusion. Mm -hmm. So this is turn your mind off. Here's the answer at the end. Mm. And so he got a disagree right there. That was a disagree. Mm -mm. Don't close your mind before we have the conversation. That's not, that's not fair. techniques. In other words, some street epistemologists, and I say some, don't like answering your questions. These are things that I've actually heard and seen and read in conversations that I've had with street epistemologists. This is more about your beliefs. Sure, I'll answer you, but let's first, you know, or, well, you give me too much credit, or you'll have to go very slowly. I'm not that smart, really. Or <laughs> I think I've used that one. I think I've used that last one because I really felt that in that instance like i was talking with somebody about like reality and how dreams are different than god and like listen i don't know you have to really slow it down for me i'm not following i'm i'm, I'm not that bright <laughs> i probably literally said that but like th this isn't a deferment technique um now i have deferred i've said like if you don't mind can we wait until the end of the conversation and i'll share my view with you i think we've talked about that in pre previous review videos i don't really do that th these days i usually share my position I was holding off just because I didn't want to skew them. Yeah, because you know, obviously, giving our own position 
can turn the conversation sour. It can raise defenses. If we have good rapport and it's near the end of the conversation, we can, I'm glad to have, you know, turn the tables and they can ask me all they want, any question they want. Um, yeah. This is this is actually problematic advice to say, like, if you encounter somebody who's doing SE and they say, I'm so sorry, I'm not familiar with those terms. What do you mean? That is not a technique to defer clarity or something that that would literally be me saying that because I'm not following. I'm not saying that because I don't like the definition you're using and I want you to use mine or something else. I'm really not following what you mean by those words. Can you help me understand? Yeah, don't say that if you actually understand their words he's and about, usages. Be authentic. Yeah, he's about to bring in some words that very few people know. There's going to be a whole screen full of stuff here in just a moment. Do you have any thoughts on this, Nathaniel, before we or Nathan before we jump? Nathaniel is correct. <laughs> on my birth certificate. <laughs> but yeah, no, no. We're good. We're good. Let's keep going. Yeah, I got another one, Nathaniel, my wife found. Okay. Oh, that's funny. What do you mean by that? And of course, you know, in this day and age of Google. It's kind of odd that, especially if you're online, somebody couldn't just Google these terms if they're really not familiar with them. But but a lot of the terms that I use are very common uh, in in philosophical. Okay, circles. hold. Yeah. Okay. This list of terms is a semester course in philosophy. This is a huge list of terms, and just Google these terms, he gets a disagree. No, you can't just Google these terms and know what they're talking about. And I assume he means in the context of like text, social media, essay conversations, not like, oh, can still, I hang on, like pause, I, I need to Google this, what you just said, <laughs> not in a real life conversation. Right, right. E even given that, it, it you're not going to be able to Google this without getting some education as to what these things even are. And realism right there in the middle has so many different meanings. Oh boy! Yeah. Oh crap! <laughs> well, then, what do you do when I look it up and the definition for realism that I looked up on Google is different than my interlocutor's definition? What would you advise that we right. do? <laughs> oh yeah, well, we got to ask them for their definition of everything. If they bring my, up physicalism, what do you mean by physicalism? Right. You know, stuff like would that. Would you would you recommend that I tell my interlocutor that I'm sorry we can't move any forward until you agree that with the Google definition of this term? He may he might be advocating for that, but that doesn't help this person that we're speaking with look at their views and their level of confidence and the quality of their reasons and the reliability of their methods. So, um, like, listen, if you're a practitioner and you discover a term like anything that's up here on the screen that you don't understand, like I've I've literally admitted on like AXP that I don't even know what metaphysical naturalism is. Like that's that was a pretty risky thing to say on a show where you kind of need to know your shit. But if you don't know it, don't make it up. And my advice is to go with your conversation partner what they say on these words. But but to Indeed. but to demonize asking for clarification on words as um as a as like pointing it out as a tactic or something. Um, that's that's really worrisome because we do that a lot and we're really advising practitioners of this method to do that. Um, you need to understand how the people that you're speaking with are using the words that they're using. Yeah. Claim uh, speaking changing. to the audience, if, yeah. if you're familiar with all of these terms, get a hold of me. <laughs> I have things to learn from you. <laughs> I don't think I've run into many people on the street or on a trail that use these words. And if I, I think I ran into him maybe on Twitter and he was using some of these words and I was asking for clarification on them. And if I remember, 
he was coming back at me saying, well, you know what these words mean. Come on. You've been doing this for like seven, eight years. You know, don't toy with me. And I really didn't know what they meant. And of course I didn't know what he meant by them, but for, but, but to, but to draw fire for having asked for clarity on the words that you're using, we got to, of course, you're going to have an issue with SE if that's the thing that you're pointing to. Yeah. Uh, like idealism. Oh, that one's special because isn't idealism what an idealist does? No, exactly not. Ideally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's keep going. We have very basic philosophical discussions. Um, the terms that you use about existence and ontology and things can be easily Googled. And uh, so if your interlocutor is, is going down these lines of of, of what I call deferment techniques, um, you kind of know that uh, they want to stay, they, do, they don't want to answer the questions. Now, not all of them will do this. I'm not saying all street epistemologists do this, but these are some of the ways in which they try to keep uh, the spotlight off of them and entirely on you. If you are critical of street epistemology or you, you reveal to them you know what they're doing, will get very personal. Um, not all of them. Again, I'm not judging all street epistemologists. Some will be like, hey, great, let's uh, let's go through it. If you want to go through it, I'll be happy to do it. Some don't like being called on that, and some get downright personal. Um, and, and it can get pretty bad. Um, it goes from mild to extreme, but the more mild is, well, if you would cooperate with me, we could make more progress. If you were more willing to go along with the process, we might be able to come to a better understanding. Yeah, don't say that if you're an SEO. Hmm. Yeah. See, I'm torn on this because if I notice that my conversation partner doesn't appear to be willing to participate in a thought experiment or or help me structure this in a way so that I can better understand it, and, they're, and if they're being resistant to that, I, I think it would be phony to not call attention to the fact that I've noticed that it seems like that's what they're doing. And I can, I can point to it and say, like, I'm, I'm noticing that you're doing this. This is how I'm interpreting it. I don't know if you mean it that way or not, but here's the potential difficulties if you are resistant to thinking about it in this way. Um, now, but there's, there's extreme, like just saying like, well, you're dishonest, you're lying, or, you know, you don't understand. There's, there's some meanness too, but I think you can, yeah. you, you need to be honest at all times, even if it seems like you don't think that they are being honest conversation partners. Right. I think, I think you could bring it to their attention in a way that it doesn't shut them down completely. That takes some None of this language right. casts impassable conversation stand. What's that? Right. They all yeah. say you. We should behave inclusive language. We. True, true. Mm. Nathan. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if I recognize that somebody's being dishonest uh, in their position or dishonest in the discussion with their answers. Um, I try to just give them some breathing room or some space. It sounds like they're maybe clinging on to this idea more so than having the honest dialogue. Um, so I like to ask more abstract questions that get us to talk about the value of believing things that are true and how our minds would be different if we no longer held onto the belief and stayed in that territory. Um, having a dishonest interlocutor has happened to me from time to time, but it's pretty rare if you keep the focus on like working together as a team to figure this out. And um, do we do we care if this weren't true, would that matter to us? Is this is this important enough for us 
to care if it's not the case or is the case if we don't believe it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. And if you ever come practice with me and we do Steel Man, you'll be completely ready to deal with a dishonest person. <laughs> to go along with the process, we might be able to come to a better understanding. Um, to you're being dishonest, to you're being disingenuous, to uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was called, uh, I was likened to a slimy fish that wouldn't answer questions. Um, and so they can get pretty personal pretty quickly. The most extreme case that I have ever encountered is that I'm pretty candid with depression. I've had depression all my life, um, but I haven't had a serious pseudo suicidal thought in over 20 years. Uh, but yet one particular street epistemologist, uh, when I was being candid about this in a conversation, at the end of the conversation said that the only reason that, that I don't want people to challenge my faith, because if I actually had to challenge my faith, I might realize that it's not true. And uh, I don't want it to realize it's not true. And I would become desperate and I might kill myself. That's an extreme uh, reaction from a street epistemologist. But it is true. And it happened. And at that point, though, even some skeptics who had seen that exchange said, whoa, man, hold on. Maybe it's time. Maybe, maybe you don't push that kind of conversation. But people that go to that degree to get that personal, you can just stop. Oh, I don't should... I don't know that example. What is he talking about? That may have been uh, at the tail end of my conversation with him on Twitter, where there were other people maybe following along and adding to it. Uh, I don't think that I used those words. I don't think I would have ever used those words. Um, but uh, on Twitter, there's all sorts of people let everything fly. Um, would this have happened if this was in a video chat or if we were in person? No. Like it happened because it was online and largely anonymous is my sense. But look at the fallout of it. Look at uh, somebody here took the time to make a video saying that they noticed this by people who expressed an interest in SE. Let's, let's just put it at that. They may have been practitioners. They may have not been or just you know casual observers. But uh, yeah, I mean, w one bad experience or a couple of bad experiences could really reflect poorly on the whole method. I, I don't know if there's ever, a, a, you know, what the workaround is for that other than just to acknowledge that people are people. They're, they have varying degrees of interest and um, a commitment to the method, I suppose. And when they do notice somebody that seems like they're being dishonest, it can be really hard to, to not call people on it in a really blunt way. Um, yeah. We have to be a little bit more diplomatic in how we respond to people who don't appear i don't know don't appear to be like um honest participants in a conversation or something like that but it's giving know, them a big old dream. agree on opt out is perfectly okay yes if you're in this you can opt out mm -hmm. great yeah that last example you said about you know someone accusing him of merely believing because of his depression or whatever that would be applicable on a lot of points in the you know, stuff not to do and how to have impossible conversations. So read the book, uh, Daniel. I think you'll like that one. That's real good. Yeah. Let's keep going. Here are the street epistemology test questions that I've heard and that you will hear eventually in the street epistemology conversation. How have you tested your beliefs? How can we falsify your beliefs? Or how do you know your beliefs are true? 
And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with these questions per se. But again, in the whole context of street epistemology, especially if they are desirous of, uh, you know, getting you to doubt, uh, it's important that you listen for these things and uh, really kind of unpack them. So here's how we can do that. It's true. The testability questions do get a little, lot of cognitive dissonance sometimes. So I guess that's accurate that these types of questions are the most, you know, I, I just had like a minor, a minor nit pit on pit nit pick, sorry, on the previous, <laughs> on the previous screen. Um, we don't test beliefs really, or falsify beliefs. It's not the beliefs. It's the reasons. It's the justifications that we're testing, the justifications that you're using to say that you you're holding a view that's true. Just a little minor thing, uh, but yeah, testing is a really big part of it. We we usually come down to some sort of like, well, how would you how did you determine that that's really the case? Yeah, testing itself kind of relates to the epistemology, and I think we do both. I think we do test claims using epistemologies, like science is a way of testing claims. And uh, I, yeah, I think it's I think it's both, and we can test various ways of testing beliefs. We kind of go meta testing, so yeah, I think so. Act them. So here's how we can do that. Briefly, uh, falsification theory uh, goes back to Karl Popper in the 20th century for something to be scientific, according to Popper, <laughs> it must be able to be proven false. And of course, though, you cannot prove falsification by the scientific method. And the something is a very vague word, like empirical claims, maybe? Also, that's not. it's not true that for something to be scientific, it must be able to be proven false. It, there must be something hypothetically that could, there must be a, there must be information that could prove it false. Not that that information is correct or exists. And mm. you can't prove falsification by the scientific method. Yeah. Uh, actually, you could falsify falsification. Sure. So, yeah. Oh. Yeah, is a test that cannot identify a failure a valid test? If it could <laughs> yeah, never yeah. identify a failure, is it a test? If it only ever gives 100%, what do we call that? Is it really testing? If we couldn't even imagine it failing or uh, identify a way in which it doesn't work or our expectations would be broken, then are we using a test at all? And if we're not using a test, then what are we doing? How are we getting to the summit of the mountain in that way? Arriving at a high degree of confidence in our idea. Yeah, and he has something can't prove there uh, that also Doug pointed out. We want even you know something ab above falsification as our highest value. We want to be open to being wrong is our core, at least my core value. So it's like... Right. I don't want any of my beliefs to be proven 100%. No more questioning. I want to be always open to being wrong about everything, ideally. And like, so no final say about anything. No one, not, even, not myself, not anybody. No one gets final say. No one gets in, in also personal authority. That's also another rule, at least, uh, that I like from kind of the inquisitors about liberal science. That's my 
ideal, you know, broad epistemology, not proper falsification theory. That's not, we're not tied to this because we use words like, you know, falsification and testing. Yeah. Uh, anything else? We'll keep going. Keep going. This is not to say that falsification isn't a helpful theory. It certainly is helpful that if I perform an experiment, that somebody, you know, halfway across the world in a lab can do the same experiment and come up with the same conclusions, or maybe they can do this, the experiment and falsify my data. Uh, so this is a helpful theory if you're doing science, but falsification itself cannot be tested by its own standards. Uh, helpful, but... Falsification is really a, a, is a quality of the hypothesis. It's not like the data. You can falsify a hypothesis using data. It's not like the data is falsified. It's like all the data is real and true. It's the relation of the data to the hypothesis that falsifies the hypothesis in theory if it gets to that point. What's the argument that that's it's circular so you can't you can't use the same thing to test the same thing? Yeah, I think he thinks that this is like our highest um form of epistemology in like in in principle that we go by, you know, everything we believe should be should go by this. So, but wait, it can itself be falsified if if that's our highest value? then that must mean there's other things that we need to go by potentially. Um, there's some great comments flowing in. I hope you guys are taking a look at them. Maybe we can throw some up on the screen. Yeah, we'll uh, do a Q&A afterwards too, or I'll, I'll have them. Oh yeah, it's still Q&A. Mm -hmm. yeah. But let's keep try to get to the end of the video. But not the only way by which we can discern if something is true or not. There's also something in relation to what a lot of epistemologists, street epistemologists kind of assume, but maybe don't think through all the time. Uh, there's this view of evidence and understanding and truth called logical positivism or empiricism that began in what is known intellectually as the Vienna Circle in the 1920s. And it's a, a philosophy of knowledge. And their school of thought was for something to be true, it must be able to be demonstrated by empirical, physical evidence, things that we can see, touch, and handle with our senses. But of course, as with falsification, we can't prove logical positivism by empirical methodologies. It's a, it's a philosophy, again. It's not uh, something physical or tangible. And so logical positivism as a philosophy of knowledge died out uh, very early in the uh, 20th century. It's not a philosophy that any serious student of philosophy of science or philosophy in general actually use because how much physical evidence do you need to prove something? And of course, logical positivism itself cannot be proven by the very means that it suggests. And so it became a defunct sort of epistemology. But of course, logical positivism is dead. You cannot prove logical positivism, empiricism by the scientific method, as it is a philosophy, not a carbon atom or a cup of coffee, of course. I recommend Kindly Inquisitors that addresses this um, and Peter Pagosian's a fan of that book. So we've, we're, we agree. So, and it's a distraction, really. I, I want to, I, I definitely want to better understand this argument. And I think this is what we were talking about in that Twitter exchange. But because I've heard a few apologists say this that, uh, you know, you can't have a test to test testing, basically, or something like that, because it's circular. And I think that's kind of what this is getting at. But um, it's still 
for myself, it's still kind of vague and up in the air. Like if we had a box of candies and we were trying to determine the total number of pieces within, whether it was even or odd or the, the quantity of it, I think we would probably be able to come up with ways that were not circular to determine uh, well, to, to determine the reliability of the process that we're using to derive the answer. But um, I don't know. It seems like there's some nuance here that maybe I'm missing that I'd like to better understand. I'm a big fan of future testable predictions. And by the way, so are they. That's why they like prophecy so much. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Okay. One more thing. Um, he was also mentioning something about like you can't use logical empiricism to determine the uh, whether something's true or not. What we're trying to do in SE is not assess the truth of the claim that you're making per se, but whether your confidence in the truth of the claim is justified. So we may not be able to run a test to show that something is factually true. And it can actually be factually true, but we just don't have the ability to, to test it. I think I get that. What we're what we're exploring in these conversations is your 100% certainty that you actually have the truth. It's your confidence, your certainty that we're exploring, not whether the claim itself is factually true. Yeah, the relationship there. Yeah. Street epistemologists will often ask you guided and scripted questions. Uh, they will often tell you to answer with binary options. Uh, yes or no, true or false, real or imaginary, tangible or intangible, odd and even, existent, non-existent. They will give... Odd, even, I guess that relates to the Tic Tac truth test. So for some, you know, uh, thought experiments do require a little bit of that. Most of the time, it's calibrated questions. Yeah, calibrated. That's ideally where we're trying to go. But yeah, maybe it needs to be set up with a couple of binary questions just to like make sure we understand how the explanation can be understood once we ask the question, the, the calibrated question. But the calibrated question is really the meat and potatoes of it. I want to hear an explanation for the idea. Sometimes I'll slip into binary options, but I almost always say like it, it's it's... Would you agree that it's either yes or no, or maybe something in between? Like I try to lately, like in the last year or two, try to tack that on to let them know that I'm not pigeonholing them into two different choices. But sometimes if you especially get somebody who's um, a very nebulous believer, like the the spaghetti on the wall, they throw it on the wall and see what sticks type of thing. Um, if they are just going all, they're, they're going up and down every aisle in the grocery store to go back to the, to the shopping cart analogy. Um, I will often ask yes or no questions if it seems like they're just becoming too nebulous, but I still give them an out. Like it's, you know, it's like, is it yes, no, or could you make a case where it could be either or? Yeah. I like Doug's lean yes or lean no option. That's also helps. Mm -hmm. Give you a question and then they will give you the answer and they, sometimes they're insistent. Some, some are demanding, some are insistent, some are more subtle. Um, but, uh, sometimes they'll give you three or four options, but, but really they're asking you to answer their questions their way. So be aware of that. And, uh, if they become impatient with your answers, uh, or if they become impatient with your reluctance to go by their answers, you can say something like this. 
If you want to truly know what I believe, then please permit me to answer as I understand the question, not as you would like me to answer your questions. So if they're going... That could risk someone answering a question you didn't even ask, you know, sometimes. So right. I which Which could lead to somebody thinking you're being a slippery fish if you are refusing to answer the question that's being asked of you. So um, you're, you're kind of putting us in a tough spot here where if you are, um, you know, if you're not answering the questions that are being asked, but then you're also demanding to answer questions that we're not asking, it's not going to bring us to clarity on your position. Now here, if your goal is to obscure your position as much as possible, then a lot of the things that you're recommending will be very good for that. But why would you want to do that? Why would you want to bring obscurity to your position? I would think that you'd want to reveal it as clearly as possible. Right. So to, to your, to your, I mean, yes, I might be the SE you're asking your questions, but I'm also your conversation partner. Like help me understand how you got there. And if I ask a question that doesn't make sense in your mind, help me rephrase the, help me rework the question so that it makes sense to both of us. And I seem to remember doing that in the, uh, uh, with this individual on, of course it was Twitter. So a lot, a lot was falling through and, you know, uh, it was getting really frustrating there, but, um, I'm, I'm noticing resistance. Why, why would you resist answering a question or, or not driving to clarity? If it seems like the person asking you questions is lost. I guess it depends on what he thinks the goal of asking the question is from the SER. Like if our main, if our yeah. pure only goal is not to sincerely understand him, but to merely get him to doubt or, you know, that type of thing, mm -hmm. then that, then it's kind of like a claim of dishonesty from him saying that SER is dishonest. It's merely a manipulation tactic. It's merely that type of thing, but we don't want to want that to happen. When in doubt about your question, ask if it's a fair question. Good. Good I fun. think I even remember, uh, well, it may not have been this person, but somebody like saying something like, um, help me rewrite the question in a way that makes more sense to both of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if, if you get resistance on the question you're asking, ask them what questions they would like you to ask that brings better clarity to their position. And then ask the question that they would ask, like they, that they would prefer that you ask. Yeah, is that fair to ask? Is that relevant to ask? Yeah, so it's it's funny how some people need a little extra hand. This is not the type of reaction you normally get from somebody, and it's I don't think it's because this is a a very well um, knowledgeable person of the Christian faith who did all this research. No, I think this is somebody who's who's really really struggling to hold on to a belief that they that they think is true, and they're intentionally. I get the sense that. Um, that they recognize the direction that the questions could bring that person to. And they, they understand the implication of the questions and they don't like those implications. Therefore, I'm going to, I'm going to get in the way of your progress by complaining about the questions that you're asking. And there's also in the section on modeling, like you can have them ask you the question and uh, model how you'd want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, um, I think I even tried that here. It was actually quite a killer thread. I should probably put that on. Uh, it was kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm, I'm sorry that you're not understanding my question. How would you prefer that I phrase that or that type of thing? Maybe I'll bring it up after the video. Yeah.
goal is to really get to understand what you mean, then they should allow you to give answers the way you understand them. And, and, and if they generally don't understand what you're saying, they should give you another opportunity maybe to explain it in greater detail. But generally what happens at this point is that they will insist that you answer their questions their way. But this is an answer that I give. And this answer oftentimes will reveal the, the depths or the intentions of the interlocutor. Are they kind and civil or were they just trying to play gotcha with me? This is a revelatory question. You can really gauge by where the conversation is going based on how a person would respond to this. What, what do you believe is the proper epistemology? What's the right philosophy of knowledge to have about epistemology? What's the right one? I'm assuming that... that and as street epistemologists, we are not in academia. We are not in the ivory tower. This is merely a conversational method. So we don't have to be academics with like a solid answer to this question. I have my own preference, um, but it's not like we as street epistemologists need this um, mm. necessarily it's not it's like the, we are epistemologists or, yeah you know, you know academic versions of it my uh my, my pat answer usually is something like if you know somebody who understands epistemology really well they're an academic then let me watch a video of them engaging with somebody on how they arrived at their deeply held belief and i'd love to understand how they can do it better than what we're doing Blow me away with your expertise and your academic uh, accolades. I'd really, I, honestly, like I'd really like to see what would be different. Would it, would it be a much more better and profound conversation or would it be my, my guess is it would result in an interlocutor who was thinking that they were being lectured at. That would be my guess, but I, I would love to see that, that, that video. <clears throat> yeah. Because you're an epistemologist. You have arrived at a conclusion about epistemology. What do you believe is the best kind of epistemology out there? What is the right epistemology? Um, and you can ask them that question. Uh, you can also ask, how have you tested your conclusions? Because if they're an atheist, if they've, if they've willingly said that they're an atheist, they have taken a position on God. And so if they're a willing interlocutor, you can ask them how they've tested their beliefs. That's fine. We can go down that road. Sure. Please do. Please do. And, and remember, like we, we tend to start with a claim that's being made. We like to identify the reasons that's contributing to the confidence that was established. And I, I wonder if you would push back if, if I asked, you know, if I could put my level of confidence that there's a God on a scale, he'd probably be okay with that. Um, yeah, we, we want to ask us any questions that you want. We would love to model also, like that's an opportunity if you're an SEer and somebody asks you, well, how do you figure out what's true? I could ask that quite a bit. I will walk them through, you know, I, I think it's really important to have good reasons, reasons that could be tested in some way and not just to my own satisfaction, but to other people. Um, this isn't a gotcha question or anything. This is an opportunity to show that you also care that your beliefs are true and you want to have your confidence apportioned to the evidence that's available. Yep, yep. About God's non-existence. What tests have they performed? You can also say something like this. Okay, 
To better answer you, perhaps you can clarify and or define what you mean by truth, reality, belief, knowledge, test, epistemology, existence, or God. You can ask them to define those words because those words will come up and you can ask them, especially if they've used the words. Can we pause that? Yeah. Does that seem like it's contradicting the previous advice about looking up on Google? I think it gets into like making sure we're in agreement on the certain definition, the certain usage. Um, but like, we don't want to have disparate usages in play in the same claim. We want to get on the same page. I think it gets into that. Yeah. I mean, this is good advice. Ask your conversation partner what they mean by these words. I, I can't push back on that. Yeah. Yeah. What they mean by those words so that you can give them a better answer and you can understand where they're coming from. Now, the question, the response I get when I ask that question goes something like this. The street epistemologist will likely say, well, we'll just use your definitions, to which you can say, well, I thought initially you believed in objective truth. <laughs> that's, a, that's a little bit strong, man. For your claims, we want to use your usages of the, de of the definitions. But when you're asking us about our beliefs, that's totally fine to ask us to define our words. That's fine. But it's not, this is a kind of a straw man. Like, we're not using our definitions for your claim or your definitions for our claim. You know, mm. Just define up front and for your, for each yeah. claim, whatever. That's fine. I think, I think this person even said this to me like, well, I'll just use your definition of what it means for this word. But we were exploring his claim. So my, this kind of goes back. This was, this was some of the resi resistance that I think I was encountering where, he wanted to use my definition of certain words to explore his claim that use those words. Do you understand the problem there? Now it could lead, it could lead to a good discussion. Like he may say, Oh yeah, that's spot on that. I use the exact same definition or yeah, I think I tweak it a little bit. I don't quite mean it this way. I use it this way, but it wasn't that it was, it was it seemingly now it was on Twitter, but it was seemingly resistance to frustrate not propel the conversation forward. Mm. That, that's the sense that I got. Th this is advice. I, I don't see this as like being really constructive advice. This this is kind of this is kind of like slowing things down. Yeah. The other thing here too is like, um, yes, I do think truth is objective. However, I also think words have various meanings. <laughs> right, yeah, like. Just because like I think truth is objective doesn't mean that I think words have inherent meanings that are consistent for everybody that encounters them. Yeah. And if he, it goes all, go ahead, Anthony. Sorry. No, I'm, please. But if it goes along this route where he's trying to now switch it into asking us about our claims and then he uses stuff like this, this is moving it from working together to talk about a claim to a debate. Um, this right. is a great tactic. We're trying to understand each other, right? Like, I try to be really flexible with words and really um, conscientious of the fact that other people use them in different ways all the time. And I, I think that's a really good place to start. And when the tables turn and you start asking me questions, then I would like, like, I'm trying to model the behavior I wish they would show for my ideas, right? And so that's why I treat their understanding of words um, with, uh, I'm sensitive to the way that they treat words and I want them to 
return the favor. Maybe be curious about the way I use words. The word reality is so often different in my book than in my interlocutor's book and my conversation partners. They uh, so I'll oftentimes say reality is my perception all the time. And I'm trying to figure out like reality to me, reality means the laws of physics and our environment and the, the thing that binds us together, the environment in which we share, that's reality to me. But I hear people say all the time, like reality is what's in my head and I'm okay with using that, that word. And maybe I'll use a different word um, for reality uh, to help us bridge our understanding to me, it's about bridging and understanding than anything else. And words um, are often interpreted differently. So we have to be really sensitive to that. Yeah. So if he said this, well, I thought you believed in an objective truth. If such truth exists, we should agree upon definitions of things. I would say, I agree. Um, what what definition should we use for this claim, whatever our claim we're talking about? And then we can make sure we're mm. on the same page. So. And you don't necessarily have to agree on the definition. You just have to have the, the, the correct understanding that the other person is using. Yeah. 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 Do you? I mean, if such truth exists, we should then agree upon definitions of things. I can't just use my definition and you just can't use your definition. We should actually, if we're going to have progress in the conversation, we should actually agree upon the definitions of things. If you define faith differently than I do, as we saw in the beginning of the video, if, if your definition of faith is like Peter Bogosian's uh, and mine is, is much different, I don't know how we're going to, to progress uh, mm. along the lines of assessing whether or not faith is uh, a reliable way to know something uh, if we're defining it differently. We can't have my truth and your truth. Uh, we can't have these two different definitions. Words have usages, not one single definition. Right. We can use faith in different ways. Depending on the claim, I can have faith that my faith is true. So that's just how words work. But we can just ex explain what we mean and just use those definitions instead of the actual words. They're like containers. Just unpack them. Yeah. <laughs> Let's envision that he ran into Peter and he heard Peter's definition of the word faith. Um, he... I don't think agrees with Peter's definition of the word faith. Let's say it's the pretending to know things you don't know. Right. Um, oh, great but, example. But if Pete was using that definition to arrive at a faulty conclusion, wouldn't you want to work within Pete's framework, within Pete's mm -hmm. usage of that word to help Pete realize to his own standard that something's amiss? Now uh, you can share your definition of it, but it's not going to help Pete unless you can really convince him that you got the right definition or something. And then it completely upends his worldview because now he's plugging in this new definition of this word. So um, we don't have to, we don't have to be uh, definition Nazis. We can, we can tentatively go with our conversations partner, our conversation partners usage of these words for the purpose of exploring their beliefs. Now, yes, it can be, and it should be a back and forth. And if it's a back and forth, then you have to clear up those definitions of those words. But if you're going to make progress on Pete's, usage of the word faith, wouldn't you want to operate within his framework? I would think that you would. And we want to do the same thing with you with these words. Yes. Mm -hmm. I want to be treated I grant that him way. a degree for throwing out the my truth, your truth, subjectivism thing. You're going to subtract one? Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't subtract. I gave him <laughs> oh. an agreement oh. for 
for rejecting the my truth, your truth, subjectivism idea. Yes, oh, we like objective truth, Daniel. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if we expect to come to a conclusion about how we know things. And so you, you, you should be able to specify with these kinds of questions uh, where, the, where the conversation is going. One thing that I have noticed that has happened every time I give a testimony and I say, this is how I've tested my faith. One thing that inevitably always happens, um, especially for the more, um, I would say, the less, the less seasoned street epistemologists, there are some that are really good at what they do and they don't get upset. I will hand it to them. They've been able to bite their tongue, even maybe when they want to say something. They don't. Um, there are mature street epistemologists who are able to have maintain this ability even when there's hot disagreement. It starts to come unraveled when after I give my testimony and I say, this is how I've tested my faith, I'm told that that doesn't count. That doesn't count as a test. That's not what I'm looking for. That's not a test. Um, that would not be a good SE technique. No. If, it, if anybody did that, don't tell someone if they used a reason and then you use an out. I assume he meant like an outsider test question implied that he did that his reason doesn't count. I assume that's what he meant. It's not like someone went out outright and said that doesn't count. It's like an implication of an outsider test question, I assume. Mm, I didn't get outsider test per se, but um, my, covers my outsider think, test in just a moment too. So yeah. I think he's making a distinction. Yeah. Okay. The, the sense that I got that what he was saying here, and I, I, I think it's, I think I agree that if you are a practice, if you're the SEer and you're asking questions and somebody reveals that they have an ability to test their conclusion or the evidence or their methodology, their epistemology, and you don't think it lives up to your expectation, I suppose you can share it with them to say, yeah, I guess I, I, I don't really, I don't know if I would find that a reliable test. But what's the important thing is he did. He thinks he has some reliability. His, his testing process is up to snuff. Now, if I don't think that it is, okay, but my not thinking that it is doesn't help him. I'm a nasty atheist. That's going to bolster his view <laughs> that, he, that he has a reliable test, right? So what's important is for him to reveal his methodology, his testing methodology, so he can see if it lives up to his own standard. And sometimes it does. Sometimes people, they have varying degrees of standards of, as far as what constitutes a good test. You have to explore it with them. Go where they take you. Yeah, and maybe he has a good test and we're just not understanding. So put the burden yeah. of understanding on yourself. Right. The technique. Precisely. And if, if I keep asking for clarification, which might look like you're being steered, to better understand that you really have a spectacular test, but you... Um, you stifle the progress that we're making to avoid the clarity that could result from doing it. It comes to me, it comes across to me is that maybe you're not quite as confident in your testing abilities as you think that you are. And that, that may not be true. Like maybe you really do, like Reed said, maybe you really have a, do have a good test and um, pushing back on the questions that we're asking could prevent us from understanding what you use to get to your conclusion. And I, I don't want to speak for everyone here. I'm not going to, but I want to understand how you got there and if it's true and if I should adopt your view. But if you're going to throw up roadblocks to prevent me from understanding your testing process, for example, or the words that you're using, 
why would you want to do that? The only reason that I can think of is that at some level you realize that you can't back it up, but I don't, I want to be charitable. I don't want to go there, but that's what my mind keeps coming back to. Yeah. One of my favorite ways to probe the understanding of like, why, like how important is the truth to you? Um, the box of truth, uh, thought experiment. I, I usually like to start my SE talks with, and this is maybe one of my scripts. I don't know, but like the box of truth, let's say you had a box, it's Pandora's box. It's magical. And you can ask it any question at all. Is there, and, and when you ask the question, you can open the box, look inside, see what's in there. And if it's not true, it shows you nothing. If it is true, it shows you all the evidence you need to believe it. Is there any question you wouldn't ask the box? Mm -hmm. And I want to know if th this idea we're about to talk about is one of those ideas. Um, if it is, then that's the discussion I want to have. Why wouldn't you ask the box that question? Um, and uh, I think that's that's like a good meta meta way to think about the importance of this idea. Yeah, good stuff. Keep going. Okay. You know, uh, people, uh, people, Islam, you know, people that are Hindus and people that are Muslims and Mormons and, and Jews, everybody can do what you did, Ray. That's not a test. That's not what I'm asking for. Well, okay. So how is it that you know that my test is wrong? And that's the question. That's where you can have that conversation. And then okay. Doug, Doug brings this up, I think. He says, oftentimes interlocutor hears that doesn't count when really the OTF is implying that to themselves. I think that's what he was talking about, you know. We're bringing up Muslims and Hindus and stuff, and that's that's the implication that it doesn't count. I mean, guilty as charged, I, I guess. Um, that's yeah, like the, that's the right implication you should come to if there is no way to distinguish, um, you know, one person and another person using the same methodology to come to two different conclusions. Um, yeah, so mm -hmm. but we're not saying that outright. And maybe we're wrong and there is a, a way to actually distinguish it and maybe we're just not understanding something let's see what else he says yeah is there, there's like there's this fine line between the recognition or like dolly had mentioned cognitive dissonance like that feeling of cognitive dissonance the brain could be scanning for all sorts of excuses to explain that and the easiest thing i think what's the easiest thing well, they're trying to trap me. They're trying to trick me. They're trying to drive me to a conclusion that I don't hold. No, that's really not what I'm trying to do. Um, maybe the cognitive dissonance is, is the realization that your reasons aren't as good as you thought that they were. And the methodology that you're using to confirm your reasons isn't as reliable as you think that it is. Could that be a possibility? What's more likely? <laughs> And they're going to say, well, how do you know that what you believe? Oh, well, I just told you why I think that I, that Jesus is the Christ. I went through scripture and cosmology and I might go through these moral and, you know, arguments and read scripture and talk about the universe and, and give them all the, the testimonies and the things I've studied. Well, none of that counts. And none of that counts because other religions exist. Therefore, I couldn't possibly be right. Strawman-ish. Um, or something to that to, to that effect. And I said, well, you ask me how I test these things. That's how I did it. That's how I've come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. And I would be happy to talk to a Muslim or a Mormon. And I have uh, about the differences in our faith. I mean, I work for an organization. That's what we do. 
Um, and so then I would ask, I said, well, well, how do you come to the conclusion that, that God doesn't exist? And that's where they don't want to go usually. And usually that. Yeah, don't, don't. <laughs> that's always losing it up there. Yeah. <laughs> Burn the proof. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't that that's a, that's a steel straw man to, uh, of my position. Yes. I would not, I would not assert that I knew that. That's when the dishonesty, the disingenuousness, uh, the, the, the uncooperativeness, the unwillingness, those kind of personal ad hominem comments. Uh, ad hominem okay. comments. I, I want to speak to that just a little bit. So if, if I notice that you appear to be running a test that seems unreliable because somebody from a completely different worldview, a competing worldview, can use the exact same process and perform the exact same test that you're doing to be just as sure that their God is real, a completely different God than yours, then I think you would acknowledge that we have an issue here. Something's different about the test, or maybe the test is, is the same and you're both arriving at possibly untrue conclusions, or maybe they're correct or you're correct. Or who knows? But there's something, something's amiss and something's worth looking into here. That's all I think we should be saying as an SEer. Not that they're wrong, but that there's something there's something unusual here, and I'm noticing it. I'm wondering if you're noticing it too, because maybe I'm I'm it's a ghost. I'm I'm not I'm noted I'm chasing something that's not a problem. But can you clear it up for me? Help me explain it. Uh, help explain it to me. Come out, and so um, take advantage of the civility. Be nice. To be honest, it's not always easy engaging street epistemologists. I've had very difficult conversations myself. But here's what I've learned. Uh, it's it's good to be kind. It's good to be civil. I mean, that's biblical, right? I mean, I, I, I strive for civility. I know atheists in person. I run the Atheist and Christian Book Club with my boss at work. I've engaged atheists and lots of people from other faiths. And so, uh, as the Bible says, you know, civility and kindness and compassion go a long way. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that uh, the engagement and the conversations are going to be easy. You know, maybe you make a new friend. Uh, maybe not. Uh, maybe you make a new enemy. Um, either way, uh, we try to extend civility, kindness, and compassion, and don't be drugged down into the ad hominem back and forth. Uh, it's important to know why you believe. If you're going to engage in a street epistemologist, uh, with a street epistemologist, one thing that is crucially important is that you do know why you believe, and uh, you've thought about it, and uh, because their questions can, can catch you off guard. And again, that's what makes it popular. They, they catch Christians off guard. Uh, people who have not thought about how they've come to believe in Jesus. And so know why you believe. Give your testimony and be confident that what Jesus has done in your life is true and real and genuine. So give your testimony. And uh, if they don't accept that, that's okay. Uh, they probably won't. They might. They might be interested in it. Uh, it, it you're going to get different reactions from different people. But be confident in your testimony about how you know Jesus is Lord. No if by testimony you mean reasons. <laughs> your limits this is absolutely essential and i i've heard street epistemologists say this as well on the other side and and kudos to them know your limits know when to stop um stop when you're frustrated and stop when they get personal and stop before you get personal because i've seen christians lose their minds too and so it's not like uh you know it's just the street epistemologists who, who come on court we can too and i have to <laughs> so you know know your limits know when to stop know when you're frustrated and and stop especially when they get personal or stop before you get personal uh and so you know just give a defense and uh and be reasonable rational civil, and fine. 
Good stuff. Okay. Is there anything that you guys would add to that? Everything looked pretty good there on that last side, except maybe the last one. Like, I think it's okay to get personal. Most people do get personal with me when they're sharing their views. These are very personal views that they're tied to their identity and there's a lot of emotional baggage. And of course there's like this whole psychological component to it. Uh, So um, yeah, I think if you trust the person that you're speaking with, uh, they built rapport. I think it's okay to share a little bit of yourself, but there wasn't anything that that really stood out to me as problematic on that slide. I noticed many of the comments here are like, well, I agree with that slide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I would add would be, um, if I'm engaging with a street epistemologist on something that I think is true, um, I want to be prepared to know what it would take to slide my confidence. And I don't think I saw that on that slide. Maybe that, maybe it was on there. Though that would be some good advice to give to somebody who's thinking about uh, challenging themselves by talking to a street epistemologist would be examine the things that would move you. What would change your mind? And... Um, does it matter to you that you have good standards by which you can be changed? And that's where I like to focus preparing. So I have 28. I have almost as many agrees as we have minutes. And my agree to disagree ratio is about three to one. I agree three times as often as I disagree. Maybe we can, you know, what would be fun. There's my, there's the stream. Uh, Is there anything in particular you wanted to share about this? We don't have to look look into it. I'll go through and see if there's anything. Maybe we can just put a link to it. Uh, But it was a thread. Uh, There was, there were some moments where I was asking for definitions and I think he asked for mine and I gave them very succinctly because I wanted a model. Like, this is how I would give a definition if somebody asked me, could you possibly do the same back to me? didn't happen. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting thread to look at. Um, oh, I was going to say, it, w- it might be kind of fun. Like, wouldn't it be neat if we can, if Daniel would be willing to do SE with somebody who was a Christian? How would he, what, like, how would he like recommend? I, I'm not sure who, the, yeah, you mentioned them before. I don't know who that is, but yeah, like somebody who's a Christian. Yeah, I guess sure. If they're a Christian, that might be kind of interesting. Like, He's can Catholic. you show? It's pretty close. Show us the optimal way to do SE, and then we can see how far off we are, and and what great like, suggestion. Right? His improvements might be problematic in some way that he's not aware of, or that could be genius, and it could could actually make make SE so much better. Mm-hmm. That's why, like. These criticisms, I, I love them, honestly. They're, they're the best thing that can happen to SE is someone to mm-hmm. take the time to write down the things that they don't like about this method because we're not doing it that much because we're in it. We're biased. We need that outside perspective. So we should welcome this type of thing. I would love it if he would sit down on your show, Dolly, or or, or even do mm-hmm. a sh- have him send us anyway. a link to an exchange. You know? Maybe you would. Yeah. So, Daniel, if you're watching, you know, hit us up. Uh, we will make we will bend over backwards, make it easy for you. Set it up any way you like. Criticisms and, and for we, SE are so fun because yeah. it's about what would change my mind. And if we talk about the things that would change your mind, about the things that would change your mind, that's like pretty meta. But yeah, it's great. <laughs> it ends up making SE better. It does. 
it improves it. And it's been improving. The criticisms have been improving SE from the very start. I think people who criticize it are not necessarily pleased with that fact, but I think it is actually a fact and you are, you are in turn making this better. Did we want to take a few questions from the audience? Sure, we can. How many Anything people are watching? I noticed we're competing against some of the some of the AXP shows here. That okay. was not intentional, Matt. Sorry. Uh-oh. <laughs> Any questions? Anyway. Anything to, to bring up here? I was reading the Twitter thread. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. We can go through the Twitter thread if you want. I mean, I, I thought I'm kind of... Uh, we're kind of pushing we... the time here anyway. Oh, that, that too. Maybe I kind of look like a dick in the Twitter thread. I don't know. It was Twitter. And it was probably I was probably intoxicated when I was doing that if it was late at night. <laughs> but I'm almost always on my best behavior when I when I engage with people because I know people are watching. It's and there's a possibility. I've even had people say, like, you know, can I engage with you? And then I want to make a video out of it or put it, you know, the, so there are people that want to take these examples to um, catch us doing things. Okay. That looks like somebody who works with Dan said thanks for the respectful review. Cool. No problem. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we're always we're Thank always you. down to review SE talks. That's what yeah. we do here on this. Dan right. can always do a breakdown of this breakdown. Let's yeah, we'll just, just, just keep breaking down each other's breakdowns. We'll go back and forth. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, good show. I like it. <laughs> awesome. Let's do it again. Oh, we're we're kind of running low on content to do reviews on. So if somebody has anything out there that you've you've always wanted us to do a review on or. Or, uh, it's, it's not even on our radar. Do you want to see us do it? And, oh, yeah. Uh, once we're in pandemic, uh, still in the pandemic, we're kind of transitioning to trying out big screen VRSE. I've done a few sessions the past few months. Anthony just got one, or his, his son just got a, uh, or his family just got a VR headset. So we're going to test that out and see how that goes. To be clear, my son, it's a present from my son. He didn't pay for it. But it's a present from my son. And he's used it's from him to me, and he's been using it all day. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. As long as he charges it, I'm gonna try to get online tonight. I cur I curated a room. Um, I got it limited to like four people, and uh, I actually had a really good talk last night with somebody um, about God in a virtual reality room. So cool. It's pretty, pretty awesome. I had so much fun when I was watching Reed on Discord. He was in the VR headset. And then there was like a bunch of other people virtually watching him virtually talk to somebody and then <laughs> making a recording out of it. There's so many like layers of inception here. Yeah. It's so meta. I'm streaming oh, yeah. on Twitch. I'm on Discord, but I'm also in the VR headset and I am hearing voices everywhere. Yeah. That was so much fun. And then we were like plugging away some questions for you like once yeah. in a while. I can hear so the cool. Discord audience like plugging me questions while I'm talking to someone on VR. Oh, so no it's kidding. A, it's a great method. It's a great system. Oh. That reminds me, there's there's also rooms where you can have like up to 14 or 16 people. So we we could all virtually be in a room. You know, our little bodies are floating. And we were thinking we could we could practice SE in that environment. Two people go up in front of the room or on the stage and they do a mock interview or something, or or maybe yeah. even the person that this this critique video can be in there and, and we can watch him engage with a Christian who happens to float into the room. We're gonna have to definitely do a review uh, episode in VR of our VR chats. I was just about to say that. I would okay. totally get a VR headset just to do that. I would absolutely do that. We all That's be sitting happen. around the virtual couch on the virtual screen, watching the virtual interview. Yes. 
Oh, I'm yeah. gonna have to get a headset. Okay. <laughs> Probably like two hundred bucks, right? Two hundred, three hundred bucks, something like that. Yeah, about three hundred or so. Yeah. Pre- pretty affordable. They have a, f- a feature okay. where you can show a video within the VR room. I don't know if you covered that or not. So, like, we could be playing Reed's video with Tia, for example, while we're all sitting around watching it, and then we can be virtually chatting about the video that we're watching. Pretty deep. Well, lots of different things we can try. Yeah, uh, we've hit two hours. Uh, Yes. So we can do outros. Go ahead and give us uh, some outros, Dolly. Thank you. I'm juggling lessons. I like to teach and talk about street epistemology a lot on the street epistemology Discord, and I have a YouTube channel called Juggling Lessons. Reed? Yeah, and I'm Reed from Cordial Curiosity. Um, I've recorded a bunch of VR chats. I'll have them up soon, hopefully, at least one or two on my channel, so stay tuned. Uh, I'm Nathan from Abstract Activist, and I have a YouTube channel. Uh, I also am on Twitter, abstract underscore SE. You can follow me there. And uh, join the Discord. Discord's awesome. There's an SE Discord. You should check it out. Yeah, I second that. The, the SE Discord is amazing. We're doing, it's a gathering place for people from around the world who want to learn street epistemology, practice it, criticize it, share their favorite video. There's even, I know there's, I, I pop in there every once in a while and there's almost always groups of people gathered. They may be playing a video game or something, right? It's not always SE, but there's community there. And that's, that's a good thing to see. It's neat to see. And we're also, we're also coordinating specific projects that we're working on. Uh, we're developing a course and that wouldn't probably be able to happen quite as easily if we didn't have that discord server. So it's a really great place to try. Yep. Yep. Cool. Cool. All right. Thanks everybody. Thanks. Yeah. Bye-bye. This is a, this is our last one for 2020. Yay. Yep, 2020. Here we come. Until next year. Hopefully it's a better year. That's of almost yeah, no relevance. Kidding. Thank to you. 2021. There we go. All right. Yeah. We'll see you next year. Good night. For the last time I'll use that joke this year. <laughs> the Street Epistemology Podcast is a production of Street Epistemology International. You can donate or learn more about this nonprofit organization at streetepistemologyinternational.org. The views, guests, and topics expressed here or not expressed here do not necessarily represent those of the organization. 